they are hard drinking, groupie shagging, drug snorting louts. Hey, hey, we're, we, you invited us to be on your podcast. That, that's true. They're the Gallagher brothers. <laughs> oh, okay. And they're huge. When Rolling Stone wrote these words on their cover in May of 1996, Oasis had done what few British bands had ever done. They had conquered America. The grunge era was coming to a close, and the Britpop movement was catching fire. Oasis' second album, What's the Story, Morning Glory, rose up the charts on the strength of their hit singles Wonderwall, Don't Look Back in Anger, and Champagne Supernova, all while acting put simply like assholes. America wasn't quite done with loud guitars, but they weren't quite ready for the Spice Girls. Oasis ruled this era in, era in the mid-90s, and What's the Story, Morning Glory would become one of the top-selling albums by a British band of all time. The Beatles-worshipping duo of Liam and Noel Gallagher led the charge with catchy melodies, accessible themes, and pop sensibilities that defied the notion that songs need to have a powerful message to be meaningful. With lyrics like, The sink is full of dishes, but she's got many dishes on the brain, along with a steady diet of cocaine and booze, Oasis swung the pendulum from angst to indulgence. But not so far that you had to feel bad about it. And today on the podcast, we have a guest, one of my best friends, and Oasis knowledge master, George McCleary. Thank you, Jake. Happy to be here. George, thanks for being on the show. Um, That might be a little bit too generous in terms of uh, Oasis knowledge master. I just listened to this album uh, cover to cover a zillion times in the 90s. Before we get anywhere, I want to uh, point out that I've mentioned a few times on this podcast that I used to be considered by my friends as a music fascist. True. When I used to to be considered a music fascist, it wasn't really my friends. It was specifically George, uh-huh. mm-hmm. and it was specifically because of my hatred of Oasis during oh, high school and early college. I'm glad college. that you admit that right off the bat, because I was planning on calling you out on that basically from the get-go. No, it, it was... It, I thought that that bands like Fish and anything else that was jam bands was everything, and that Oasis was a bunch of happy crap but you didn't get really into fish until this album like this album came out i think in 90 it was this album that got you into yes this this (laughs) this album was like now i realize what type of music i don't want to listen to what i really want to listen to is hippie jam bands not Britpop. right no at the time i was listening to this album like crazy and i uh and i you know brought to the amster twins as i do with most music and they're like this is crap i hate this and i was like all right well screw you but we talked about music all the time and we had a ton of overlap but for whatever reason this album just we you know we didn't agree and i thought it was solid gold you guys thought it was crap but now here we are 20 some odd years later yep talking about this album what happened between then and now to a make you kind of tone down your music fascism and b when did you listen to this album because like you know there was all wall-to-wall fish from 2000 to 2010 or something then so did you pop in what's the story morning glory in 2011 and okay this is actually a good question and and what seriously happened is i had somebody else besides you call me out and say you know it's really unfair that you will be so black and white on music and say, this is great and this is crap and not have anything to back it up with. So I, I started doing things like somebody would say, how do you even know that you don't like sync? What have you heard besides what's on the radio? And so I'd listen to an entire sync album, like No Sync- Strings Attached. I love sync And go, this is really well produced. And so I went back to some of these albums that I didn't like during the 90s and although i still think that jewel oh, that's right pieces that's when you view, called me crying and said george 
<laughs> I'm sorry, so I was wrong. <laughs> uh, and I went back and listened to this album, and although we'll, we'll get to this, although the lyrics mean absolutely fucking nothing, it turns out that these are anthemic songs, and it's I, I have developed an appreciation over the years of how hard it is to write an anthemic song and write them over and over again. So I want to this this uh, makes me think of something because like you're not the only person I know who is like the Oasis guy because mm. um I first encountered Oasis because uh, like my freshman year fresh sophomore year of of college. Um, was when def- definitely maybe came out, and there was this kid Sasha who could not talk about anything else. And so I, I have two questions. One is, can you think of another time when like you had a friend who was so closely identified with a certain band that like you know you could not distinguish them? Because <laughs> I also I, I had like an in excess friend in middle school you weren't the in excess guy no 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 ben my friend ben got me into in excess he was the in excess guy so he listened to them in excess yes he he listened (laughs) to them excessively and and the funny thing is like i feel like both in excess and oasis are not bands that you're going to fall in love with because you identify with the lyrics so what is it oh man is that question directly at me i think it is because ben and sasha aren't here that's true they don't they don't get their own voice today. It was just goddamn catchy. Yeah. Every single song, the cover to cover on What's the Story Morning Glory and definitely definitely maybe for yeah. that matter. It was just so insanely catchy that it didn't I mean, it's not that it didn't matter what they were saying, but I mean, all songs these days are just so veiled in metaphor that, you know, a lot of the time you don't really know exactly what a song is about, sure. you know, especially, you know, the first few times you listen to it and a lot of times you look up what it's about in order to, you know, derive meaning from it. And so at the time I was, you know, 16 years old. I wasn't really looking for really deep meaning. And plus coming out of the grunge era, I mean, that, that era was all about the message. It was about the movement you know, about really serious themes like, like, um, you know, an Oasis was really, you know, tipping the pendulum back to, um, you know, a little bit more, uh, like of excess, they were, you know, like Rolling Stone said, they yeah. dr- they shagged groupies, they snorted drugs, and their their themes were just much more lighthearted. And man, I was just ready for that, I guess, yeah. subconsciously. I, I never really thought about the uh, connection between Oasis and Motley Crue, and you just made me realize they're pretty much the same band. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> um, this, this album sold 22 million copies That's worldwide. That's a lot. And, yeah. and it only sold four in the U.S., which just shows how much worldwide popularity it had. And what's interesting is critics, I wouldn't say they panned it, but in terms of this versus definitely maybe, most critics didn't like it as much. But this just kind of goes to show how critics' opinions often don't matter. It's the music that speaks for itself. Right. And really like the hits off this album you could not get away from them in the mid 90s which may have been what turned me off to it so much was was you did not like things that were considered cool right and anything <laughs> where we, we just talked about in sync i mean there was nothing cooler you know chart wise <laughs> at the time than that and uh you hated that you didn't like Oasis. If it was, I mean, that's the cool thing to do is to like is to dislike the things that are cool, especially yes. as a teenager. Uh, I was I was a lot like Jake in that uh, during during the Britpop boom, 
Uh, I was writing for a magazine called Addicted to Noise, which was like a very little-known indie magazine. And uh, they uh, rated, uh, they reviewed um, Pulp's different class, and they gave it their top rating, which was orgasmic. And Mm. I was like, oh, cool. This is the Britpop album that I I can like. (laughs) And to this day, I am a huge Pulp fan. So this is like like the pitchfork of yesterday. Oh, absolutely. Like pitchfork, it's like, well... I'd love to enjoy this album, but Pitchfork panned it, so unfortunately I'm not allowed to like it. George, one of the things that you pointed out to me was during the 90s, we would find out that there were these B-sides for songs, and unlike today where you can literally pull up Spotify and we can listen to that song that you just mentioned, you had to go and seek this stuff out. Oh yeah, there are beautiful South B-sides that I, I... We paid like $12 for just to get like one or two songs on an import single. Yeah, no, it was like finding a needle in the haystack. Back in the day, I had to, you know, walk down to Second Avenue Records in Portland, Oregon, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, either root through, you know, like, you know, a a, pile of uh, random shit or talk to the surly uh, guy behind the counter and say, hey, um, I'm looking for the B-side off of this. Have him roll his eyes that I would look for something so so mainstream. It's a B-side. Give me a break, bro. But and uh, and then have him order it and it would show up with Japanese writing all over it and cost thirty five dollars. But. I wanted it so badly because yeah. I heard that there was more because I, I read stuff in music like, oh, yeah, especially UK stuff because stuff came out there that didn't come out over here. So I was like, OK, this exists. I want it. How do I do it? And so I was uh, and so I had to go digging like Sherlock Holmes and I got all of it, all the stuff, all these B-sides and everything um, I had back in the day. And it made me a little bit of a nerd. But now I look I look at the catalog now and it's like. I literally heard everything. I didn't miss out on anything. It made me feel <laughs> like all that effort wasn't in vain. Yeah, to go back to this thing about um, uh, Noel trying to uh, declare what what are the quintessential Oasis songs, I feel like mm. we, we talked about this before, that this is a thing that, that songwriters try to do that you can't actually do. And uh, I'm pretty sure Robert Plant has been trying to convince the world that Cashmere is the quintessential Zeppelin song and not Stairway to Heaven for 45 years. <laughs> <laughs> Never going to work, pal. Never going to work. Um, I want to listen to Don't Look Back in Anger real quick so that we can discuss the uh, sibling mm-hmm. rivalry and what brought Liam into this band. Fade away. 
Okay, this is my favorite Oasis song by a huge margin. Mine oh. too. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay, this song has three pre-choruses. <laughs> and I love that. <laughs> yes. There, there, there are so many hooks in this song. This song has as many hooks as like five other songs. And then it's got that minor four chord in the chorus. You know, soul slides away, dune. Yeah. Um, fucking perfect. Brilliant. Ugh. <laughs> God, this is so satisfying to hear after years of Jake making fun of me. Like, this is like 20 years, 25 shit years ago of this guy being like, Oasis sucks, Oasis sucks, as we're, you know, drinking beer in the forest, trying not to get caught. And now here we are. You've come out of the forest. And now I've found completely different reasons to make fun of you. Absolution. The fact that like, oh, you're saying like, oh, this is so great. I'm just like, oh, if my 16 year old self could hear you, I'd just be like, Eat a dick, Jake. (laughs) (laughs) So, back to the point. This is the first non-B-side song that Oasis wrote. (laughs) Yeah, back to the B-sides. Sung by Noel. Right. And it brings up this point of brothers and bands. Oh, okay. Now, George, George and I were discussing last night... Bands that have brothers in them. And mm-hmm. we, we came up with a few. Uh, Black Crows had Chris and Rich Robinson. Sure. Malcolm and Angus Young at, and ACDC. Yep. Alex and Eddie Van Halen. These were bands. Tommy and Bob Stinson replacements. Oh, mm. yeah. Um, all of these seem to be complementary to each other where it's like. <laughs> I see where you're going with this. Where, where it's like this band couldn't have worked without the two of them. But. You hear this song, probably the best Oasis song, and you go, why was Liam there? He wasn't writing any of the music. He didn't have a better there range. There in general, not than, just there on this song. Than, than Noel. Yeah, that's what I mean. There in general. He was an asshole. Mm-hmm. He didn't have stage presence. Like, he seems almost useless to the band, and they hate each other. So what made Noel go, you know, let's bring Bro Bro in, see what he does, and I don't think he's a great frontman. The only thing I think he has going for him is he has a unique voice, which I've talked about before, that you can hear him on the radio, and even if you don't know the song, you go, that's Liam Gallagher. Right. I mean, in the context of this song, I mean, um, I always thought that Noel sung, sung this song because of that high note on the chorus that Liam just can't hit. Right. Um, if you sing along and play with, along with enough Oasis songs, you realize that Liam's vocal range is kind of limited. Mm-hmm. And um, that note on "Don't Look Back in Anger" is uh, it's up there. I think it's I think it might even I think it's a G. Yeah, I can't hit it. Yeah, yeah. It's a, in your chest voice. If you're a male singer, it's not an easy note to hit. And so. Um, Liam uh, doesn't have to do that like anywhere else on the album, and so That's interesting. yeah, and so and there and the same with acquiesce the uh, the B side where Noel sings, and so <laughs> I told you you can't mention that. <laughs> oh man, it's going to keep coming up. But uh, you hired me, no. Um, but either way, uh, but you make a really good point. Like you know, it does beg the question, especially after a song like this. Like Noel is writing the songs, he's running the show. You know what is the value that Liam is actually bringing to the table here when you can kick out a great song uh, just like this? And you know my answer to that is that Liam was distinctive. Yeah. And Noel's voice, I'm sorry, I, I love it. It's great. Um, I love his work, but his voice is very middle of the road. Yep. And so uh, Liam had had swagger. He had like you know it's just like this particular bit of whiny stank. I yeah. I, I sent this video. There's a series of them to George that on YouTube you can find 
three videos that are just Liam spewing off at the mouth in front of capacity crowds at Wembley Stadium. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And each of them is like six minutes long. He was such a prick on stage that it's like, how do you call that stage presence? Did you read the comment section? No, okay. I should have. So I was... so. It's been a long time since this concert happened. I don't know when they posted this thing on YouTube, but there's a steady stream of comments like, oh, I love Oasis. This is great. This guy's hilarious. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, what the fuck? This guy's on stage drunk, berating the audience, acting like an asshole. The audience is loving it. The YouTube comment section, which is usually terrible, by the way, is loving it as well. And I'm like, what planet is this? Am I just old at this point? Aren't these commenters my age who are listening to Oasis at the height of their fame? I mean, I think, I think it's pretty funny, too. <laughs> well, there it is. <laughs> um, so, okay, so, Jake, you asked why why bother putting Noel in the band. This Liam, would be the perfect... Liam. Sorry, putting Liam in the band. Uh, it seems like this would be the perfect time to talk about uh, Oasis MTV Unplugged. Mm. Okay. So, do you know the story? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um can I can tell I, it, I tell it? I've, tell I've it. heard two different versions of why why it went down the way it did. Um, but uh, basically, they were booked to uh, to do a MTV unplugged. Uh, like two hours before the the performance, uh, they announced that uh, Liam had a cold and couldn't perform. That was definitely not the case. Either he had stage fright and couldn't sing, or like they just had a fight and he was like, you know, fuck you guys. Um, so they recorded the whole thing with Noel on lead vocals and Liam like sitting in the in the gallery, like glaring and making rude gestures, getting and hammered. He, yes, he's actually screaming time. at certain yeah, points yeah. at the stage, and it's. I think this kind of comes down to part of the entertainment value of Oasis was watching these two fight. And Definitely. Yeah. Each other. I remember the promos for this MTV Unplugged because as a huge fan at the time, I was I was waiting for it and I was like, God, please let them do an unplugged. And, and then, then they didn't air it, right? Or they did, did they? it. Oh, they, they did, did it. Okay. Oh, they did. Oh yeah, no. And I I, I taped it on my VHS VCR okay. and rewatched it because I, it was they, just they so good. They didn't release but, it as a as an album, I think. No, but on uh, uh, yeah, no, they didn't. Right. But, but as it. but as a promo, MTV aired commercials that said like, Hey, come check out uh, Oasis Unplugged. We hope you enjoy it as much as Liam did. <laughs> and they show him uh-huh. in the audience. Yes. Like just with this bucket hat on, looking like looking like a bum, you know, drinking, you know, m- you know, moving around like somebody who's had one too many. And there's the band on stage right in front of him, his band performing and mm-hmm. so MTV is drawing attention to this it's not it's not like hey whoa we're sorry this got fucked up no this is like hey check out this idiot who just didn't even do his own MTV unplugged <laughs> right sat in the audience getting hammered and heckling and yeah isn't that great it's it's it kind of it lines up with you know that YouTube comment section that I was talking about yeah. like people liked this I don't remember those promos at all that is absolutely uh-huh. amazing that's how my memory works and, I remember and Noel did like very that. well it was, he, it's a it's a very good performance. He did, but oh, it, yeah. it comes back to, is he entertaining enough? Like, Oasis was, was already huge. Is he entertaining enough that you would have heard Oasis for the first time there in that video and gone, you know what? This is my band. This this is who I love. I think that it, it detracted from how good they were. And if Liam had been fronting it, even though they're so static on stage, they're, mm-hmm. they're not a band that moves around a lot. Not like Peter, Bjorn, and John. <laughs> um, uh, they That it would have been a, a different show. It would have been a, a much better performance. 
I like I yeah. tr- I'm trying to think if of another you were there or, with, or if they were jumping around you mean. No, if Liam had been fronting it and you'd been watching it on TV. Oh yeah. It was really good, but if it'd been your first introduction into no, Oasis, right. it it just would have been okay. Liam had a certain swagger and a catchy voice that that kind of made the band. It's true. Yeah, and Noel was sitting down the entire performance and his vocals sounded great and uh but you know, and his banter was good. He's got a good personality, but his voice just doesn't have that same, you know, that same swagger like yeah. Math- Matthew was saying. And so it's it, it's like when Natalie Merchant didn't show up for Ten Thousand Maniacs Unplugged and they had their violin player sing all the songs. That didn't happen. Okay, <laughs> Gary Sharon. I mean, but they the did replace. <laughs> <laughs> but they did replace Natalie Merchant not long after that. They did. But she she quit. Yes, yes. Ten Thousand Maniacs made like four more albums without her. This is absolutely uh, true. That is. That can't be true. That, it's true. That can't be good. <laughs> yeah. I don't I, I certainly haven't heard any of them, but um this this reminds me I was talking to uh, uh the other night I was talking to friend friend of the show, Jake's friend, uh, and my friend too, uh, Libby Wood, um, who runs uh Rock Seattle Rock Camp. She volunteers, volunteers for, for Rain City Rock Rain Camp. City for rock girls. Camp. And she said she did a uh, like a rock camp for adults last year that was a uh, a cover band rock camp where you you like get together like you split up into bands and you choose who you're going to cover and then like five weeks later you have to put on a full set of songs by the band the band you're covering and so everyone at the table was like oh now we have to think about like what bands we would cover and i i decided i initially decided in excess but i think actually oasis would be a super good choice oh, for that yeah, plus it would be so easy to yes. learn the songs yeah dude if you do that i'll come up and i'll play guitar okay that that would be it's uh, it's literally a camp for girls. You guys are not doing that. No, no the, the the I'll dress and drag. The cover, I'll do what it takes. The cover band camp was not. She 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 was the only woman in her band, which was a Pixies cover band, and she was the the singer. Oh right, she was the Kim Deal. No, she was Black Francis. What? <laughs> okay, I guess that makes sense. Uh, Libby, sorry, you don't look anything like Black Francis, and I mean that as a compliment. <laughs> uh, George, you want to pick a song to listen to? Yeah. Um, we have to listen to Wonderwall. I um, when when you said, "Hey George, we got to pick some songs," I said, "Someone's got to take one for the team and do Wonderwall because you can't not talk about that." Yeah, I know. Today is gonna be the day that they're gonna throw it back to you By now you should have somehow realized what you gotta do I don't believe that anybody feels the way I do about you now Backbeat, the word is on the street that the fire in your heart is out You've heard it all before, but you never really had a doubt I don't believe that anybody feels the way I do about you now
Okay, so here's Wonderful. <laughs> there we go. Uh, next song. Uh, <laughs> George was playing some mean air cello on that. Great pre-chorus again. Yes. Like, yeah, what's up with that? I don't think I noticed that till like we were started recording that the Oasis is addicted to pre-choruses. Oh, and the pre-choruses that tee up their choruses just magically. Yeah. I also love that this basically has two uh, verses before it gets to the pre-chorus, mm-hmm. and they both end in different ways. So, like, the first one has kind of a... Uh, fifth cadence to it leading into the second one and the and the second one ends on the one chord so it's like two different pieces of music that they've stuck together to lead naturally into the pre-chorus it's really really great songwriting and it it's still lyrics that don't mean anything like it's i i challenge anybody to derive a meaning out of what's going on in this song but it doesn't matter because you can sing along with it so easily. Well, this one's just sort of like a like a real like low key kind of tribute to a girl type of you know you're 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 cool, yeah. you're nice. I Who's like your you. Wonderwall. Yeah, with Wonderwall, by the way, um, factoid. I know you told me that we weren't just going to do factoids, but uh, that's an old. Uh, um, Album by George Harrison, which is how they oh, got. Oh, really? Oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Well, and well, okay. Let's and, and uh, real quick, don't look back in anger. Apparently, the chorus was stolen from a tape that was found in the Dakota after John Lennon died. So this band <laughs> never... start a revolution from my bed. Yes. Well, because you know that he and Yoko right. like, sat in bed. Yeah. Yeah. So. This band, I don't think they ever really tried to shy away from the the fact that they were somewhat ripping off the Beatles or wanted to be the second coming of the Beatles. But boy, did they really stick to their guns on Mm -hmm. that idea of like, we are so in love with the Beatles that we shamelessly rip them off. Yeah. Now, do you have a problem with that? Well, so there was this discussion going on yesterday as well about uh, sampling versus directly blatantly ripping off bands yeah what's the difference between sampling and ripping off um well okay first of all i mean i think if you're not using a piece of tape it's not sampling certainly not um Mm. so if you're if you are lifting a chord progression i think that's different from sampling but you know no one is going to confuse after after like the first six seconds no one's going to confuse don't look back in anger with imagine Although they said, you know, he said, yeah, the intro to Don't Look Back in Anger is Imagine. It's not like, you know, yeah, yeah, of course. like Vanilla Ice says, you know, that it's not under, that uh, Ice Ice Baby isn't under pressure when it obviously is, but he says it's not. So he's, you know, bullshitting. But Noel, you know, comes right out and says, yeah, we, we took it from Gary Glitter on Hello. We took it from yeah. Imagine on uh, Don't Look Back in Anger. And there's a number of other examples, like the one I love by R.E.M., that's Morning Glory. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> that's true. Which we'll get to in a second. Yeah. But but Noel made this argument in an interview once where he said, taking new songs and using pieces of old songs is almost a way of making old songs popular again, like making young people go back and go, oh, well, I should listen to this song that this is based off of. But that somehow implies that somebody who's 16 years old goes, that sounds familiar. Or I'm going to look up where that song came from and go back and listen. It, like, it's, sure, a, it's a terrible we argument. We couldn't do that back then. The no. internet was right. like not nearly as robust I mean, in the mid-90s. Like, 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 go into your parents' record collection. And, and accidentally go, 
Hang on a second. Whoa. Yeah, Oasis but, completely ripped this yeah. off. I'd um, never heard of Gary Glitter until I found out that they took that thing from I him. Guess, I guess basically I have zero problem with stealing songs or pieces of songs as long as you give credit. Well, they didn't, but they wrote really good songs. <laughs> yeah, and maybe even sometimes if you don't, I'm okay with it. They got, su- they got sued for one of their songs on Definitely sure. Maybe and Lost. Yeah, that one was blatant. Yeah, but but... I'm okay with it too because Shaker Maker, right? Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, the the law on this has gotten real complicated. Like you know, there it's 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 at a point where like the like the Supreme Court is going to have to step in and lay down some guidelines that no one's going to understand. Um, because I mean, like you know, because we haven't talked we talked about like you know the blurred lines thing. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, this is this is a real problem. The, the Robin um, Thicke song you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, the, yeah. the song Blurred Lines. The, the not, song the, not, the lines blurred not the Blurred Lines, not the Yes. Uh, um, it, it's, it seems almost unfair to songwriters because I'm not sure that half the time songwriters are blatantly, purposely ripping off Oh, artists. right, and absolutely. I mean, you know, if you, if you want to write a hit song, you basically have four chords to play with. <laughs> You know, yeah. you got the one chord, the four chord, the five chord, the six chord. Like that is that is like oh. almost every you know hit pop song that you hear today. And there is a limited number of ways of orders in which to play those chords. Don't tell anybody this because I'm a campfire legend at playing cover songs. Uh-huh. And I don't need anybody to know my secret. Okay, sure. that they're all the same four chords. <laughs> I I already figured it out. Even the songs that you write, it's like. Well, you're blatantly ripping off Oasis, who are blatantly ripping off the Beatles, mm-hmm. so... Yeah, no, it's a string of rip-offs, and we, the listener, really kind of benefit from all this, you know, we'll just call it plagiarism, yeah. pseudo-plagiarism, because I didn't know at the time that anything was being ripped off of anything, but honestly didn't care. I knew that the intro was Imagine. I mean, I'd heard that song before at that point as a teenager, but I st- it, it didn't detract at all from that song just being great. Right, and like, you know, this is this is something like, you know, I, I, uh, I used to be a food writer, and... Uh, like periodically I would have a conversation either with uh, uh, my mom or, you know, uh, someone else about like, you know, why do we need a new Italian cookbook? Like, you know, it's going to have, we know exactly what recipes are going to be in it. You know, you can find them on the internet or in 7,000 other Italian cookbooks. Why? And I think the answer is because like a Italian cookbook from the seventies, even if all the recipes are great, just doesn't, is not going to speak to someone who is just learning to cook. You know they're not going to go. They're not going to pick up that book. It's Something true. needs and, to be contemporary, right? So yeah. there are there are you know Oasis is a is a very nostalgic band, but there are there are some things about it that sound very 1995. Oh yeah, without um, a doubt. No, and I I'm definitely not coming out against of uh, against this uh, the pseudo plagiarism. Yeah, I think it's I think it's great. I just think that it should be duly recognized. Yeah, I think so. Because, uh, you know, something else came out before that, you know, is basically that exact thing. Pointing that out, be like, okay, okay, now I've heard of this other guy. You know, they're getting credited, I suppose. What, yeah. what was the famous quote that Liam made about the Beatles? Was it that they were bigger than the Beatles? It was something along those lines at one point where, where he said, the Beatles said we're bigger than Jesus and... Oasis said we're bigger than the Beatles. Did they say that? Yes. Oh, probably. probably. Why not? What, when, what didn't they say? Yeah, which is simply not true. But then again, the Beatles, I'm not sure we're bigger than Jesus. Um, apparently, he, says, uh, he said, we will be as big as the Beatles, if not bigger. Okay. Mm. The Beatles, for the record, uh, didn't really think too much of Oasis, at least the ones that were living at the time. Um, Liam was called the silly one or something like that. <laughs> but uh, I think it was George Harrison and... Uh, 
I can't remember whether Paul McCartney weighed in or not. Uh-huh. I'm sure Ringo said like, "Oh, Jody, go down." They would go chops. But, <laughs> but uh, George and Paul, I think, were on record as not thinking too much of them. And I think it was sure. more in the context of them, you know, acting like jerks. Yeah, yeah. Matthew, what song did you pick? Um, oh yeah, me. I got songs. Uh, how did about- we really talk about Wonderwall though? We never really did. <laughs> what else needs to be said besides it was a really popular song? When that cello kicks in, that's that's when it signals to me that we're out of the definitely maybe area and into the what's the story yeah. era. Yeah, sure. Because Roll With It and Hello, the first two songs in the album, could have been on definitely maybe. They're rock yeah. songs. And but, Hello is a very good song. I didn't I didn't pick it because I knew we were going to do uh, Some Might Say and it's uh, the same genre. Similar, kind of. yeah, yeah. But when that cello kicks in, that's when like, okay, this album has string arrangements on it. Mm-hmm. This is going to have a different feel. And then Alan White's drumming with a boom, 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 boom. It's just a completely different feel. We have to cover the minute and a half intro to this <laughs> seven-minute song somehow. How many special people change? How many lives are living strange? Where were you while we were getting high? Slowly walking down the hall Faster than a cannonball Where were you? Getting high. Someday you will find me caught beneath the landslide in a champagne supernova in the sky. Someday you will find me caught beneath the landslide in a champagne supernova, a champagne supernova in the sky. Okay, couple couple things I notice here. Uh, first of all, uh, Noel Gallagher in a 2005 interview said that he still has not made up his mind as to what a champagne supernova is. Yeah, no, uh, <laughs> I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned that. Okay, first of all, there's a very great there's a great deliberate pee pop uh, in that chorus. Like pee pop, yeah, we got champagne. Sh- yes, supernova. Oh. Uh, uh, isn't he saying supernova? Probably. Nover with an R. Yeah, Noverin. Noverin, yeah. yeah, with the vowel. Um, I like how, so this one does not have a pre-chorus. It goes directly from the verse into the chorus. And I like how they are like showing you by the fact that there is a little dynamic change between the verse and the chorus that this is a song that's going to build over quite a long time. Mm-hmm. I think that's really effective. Yeah. What is it? Like a five and a half, six minute song? Seven. Seven? Oh, jeez. Yeah. I mean, part of that is like the intro swimming in and the outro swimming out yeah but the repetition of the outro you know that just keeps going and but going, yeah. what's interesting is when this was released oasis had become so huge through wonderwall and don't look back in anger this was the last single from the album i'm pretty sure in america and, yeah and i don't think that they edited it for radio i think that they allowed it to be a seven minute song which was not very common at the time because oasis was so big by that point that they're like, screw it, we'll we'll do whatever you guys want. This is when they were the most popular. I remember when this came out. Yeah, if you look at definitely. the music video, it's there's a whole lot more production. There's like these crazy spinny camera angles. The band is much more gussied up. Liam has a beard. Uh, <laughs> and he's looking, you know, they've they've they're they've stylized him pretty heavily to look like a really attractive guy, which you know he is. But you know they really they really play to it in this video. This is when you know this is the top of the roller coaster for them. Yeah, 
and it's a really well-written song again. Like, uh, him saying that he doesn't know what the lyrics are about is so ridiculous. It's like, I just want to be able to call him and go, I've got your answer. They're about nothing. Yeah. They're about absolutely nothing, but that's okay because you but really, But I have a really question for you. Song. Here's to being a straight shooter. Yeah. How many special people change? <laughs> How many lives you live is is strange. <laughs> that is that is so strange. Uh, I think about that a lot. It doesn't mean anything at all. <laughs> but but here's the best question of all, Jake. Where were you while we were getting high? Because yeah, yeah, you're normally with us getting high. So you know, now that we're on the record, God damn it, where were you when we were getting high? Um, I have a serious question, uh, George. Do you listen to any Oasis? post this album oh man i'm so glad you asked this not a goddamn thing okay yeah well no no no. i mean my fandom trailed off pretty heavily at the end of the next album be here now was a good album but everybody was expecting it to be just the world and so there's really really high expectations and the album was definitely good but the al- the the band actually said after that they're like yeah you know we're actually not too you know pissed that this album didn't do as well because I'm really getting tired of not being able to leave my house yeah sure <laughs> and so they so their their fandom in uh in America definitely you know went down and then post be here now I mean there's there's a few good songs and I've I've heard them but they're so not as good yeah and uh, what was the single from be here now cast no shadow no that's on what's the story morning glory uh-huh. but uh. No, there's um, Don't Go Away. That's the one. That one's good. Stand By Me, I think, <laughs> Wait, also what was came... it? Girl, Don't Go Away Mad? <laughs> <laughs> I think They're I... the same band, man. But that's the one that got like an MTV music video for Don't Go Away, that is. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was popular, but it didn't, it didn't have nearly the staying power that really anything, any of the, of the three main singles off of What's the Story. Sure. So... We talked in the past about uh, the grunge rivalries and how the media was basically trying to create rivalries between grunge bands, but really there was no fight going on between any of them. All of them were like, we don't really care that we're just writing music and they're writing music. I don't understand why one of us has to be the best. That was not the same for the Britpop People movement. from Seattle are so agreeable. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Well, apparently people from Britain are not agreeable at all because there was a serious rivalry going on between bands at that time. That was kind of manufactured by the media and kind of one-sided because Oasis was made up of a bunch of assholes, or well, at least fronted anyway. And so they really played into it. They're like, yeah, fuck, that was fucking wankers. You know, they right. they did. Whereas Blur kind of Blur took the high road. Blur was a bunch of intellectuals. Yeah, they were kind of from, you know, yeah, they are kind of upper crust, at least, you know, as the two were, you know, pitted against each other as, you know, the Manchester lower crust versus the wherever Blur was from, upper crust. And Damon Albarn of Gorillaz fame, uh, he was just sort of like, you know, whatever, um, you know, not not playing yeah. into this, took the high road. Whereas Liam, not surprising, is like, oh, fuck those guys. Yeah. Like, and he said something really terrible at one point, like he wanted to his yeah. house to burn down or something like that. Yeah. And and so unlike the grunge era where the media tried to create this and all the grunge bands were like, yeah, we don't really care. Oasis apparently was easily influenced and were like, yeah, yeah, that's right. We don't like those guys. I mean, yeah, it's true. I mean, Stephen Malkvist did once like, you know, say something snippy in a song about the Smashing Pumpkins, but then sort of walked it back a month later. So, (laughs) yeah. Hey, we're cool, bro. We're cool. And Billy Corgan probably deserved it. Just like, Blur, if if they weren't so, such nice guys, 
probably should have said mm-hmm. something about how Oasis was assholes, but oh, he wanted else the members was. of Blur to catch AIDS and die. Cool, That's what bro. it was. Wow. Yeah, pretty pretty aggressive. That that is intense. Um, yeah, to go back to Pulp for a minute, like uh, Jarvis Cocker of Pulp, as far as I've been able to tell, like in most songs plays like a character who is just like the worst person you've ever met, but seems like he's pretty much a nice guy in real life. I don't know enough about Pulp to know that. Yeah. Like you might be the only guy in the United States who can name any member of Pulp. That's or not that where there was a band named Pulp. No, they, <laughs> they, they were part of that Britpop thing. Yeah. But like, let's be honest, what was really popular in America? Oh right, no, no, they they were they were on par with the other two bands in England, but not here. And if Song Two hadn't come out from Blur, no one in America would have ever heard Absolutely. of Blur. It's, it's true. I mean, I saw another song mentioned by about uh, by Blur in one of the articles about Oasis. You know the song "Girls and Boys." I mm. I do. Um, but it was another song mentioned I, that was apparently a huge hit in Britain. I can't tell you what it was because I was like, I, I have no idea what that song I, during is. During that time when that whole rivalry was going on, I was like, oh, well, they're rivals. They must sound similar and be like, you know, kind of vying for territory on the charts. And they sounded so dissimilar Very to me. Very different. Yeah, so different. And uh, I liked a handful of Blur songs for sure, but I didn't get into them like nearly to the extent that I got into Oasis. Well, and I was also thinking about what other bands were part of the Britpop era in the 90s. And the other bands that I could come up with were like The Prodigy, Underworld, uh, Lush. Lush, kind of, kind of, but but Elastica, Elastica. Uh, yeah, but but like with one song, basically. There was a the mi- Verve. Oh yeah, yeah. There was a mixture of rock and then kind of like this early EDM thing that was coming out of Britain at the same time. So, unlike the grunge era where it felt like a lot of people were doing the same thing, the Britpop era there was a lot of different things going on at the same time. It was just I think that Oasis kind of started this what else is coming out of Britain and gave it an opportunity for a lot of other bands and groups to shine in the United States because U.S. record labels went, what else can we market here? Totally. And it worked. I've got it. A, a Britpop one-hit wonder that was beloved by the same guy who I thought of as the Oasis guy would be uh, Laid by James. Oh, yeah. They were, yeah, I guess they were British. I think so. But I would hardly call them part of the Britpop movement. That was I had another no idea one of those, they were British. That was another one of those gray areas of if you didn't tell somebody they were British, it was like they were part of the grunge <laughs> era or, or yeah. the alternative era, not the Britpop yeah, era. Well, they just had one big hit with Laid, kind of like Elastica, yeah, yeah. or the things that just kind of poked through the surface like that. It was it was the labels trying to strike strike gold again and it, sometimes it worked sometimes it didn't the only one that i can think of that we've discussed at all is uh is uh oasis they're the ones that really had like the multiple singles that charted that actually oh, were yeah. playing on mtv um like with more than one song in fact i can't think of another band that another british band that was repeatedly no, really, getting rotation what, on what mtv what this was 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 like a huge uh you know rock and roll moment in the uk that spilled over a time that spilled one band over into the us market yeah 4, mil- four million albums sold on for one album is nothing to scoff at though no no I, I, that's what i'm saying they spilled one one band that was a huge success yeah uh can we listen to morning glory yeah
guess what? Two pre-choruses? Killer. Killer <laughs> pre-choruses. And another one that tees up the chorus amazingly. But but you know what the first thing I thought of when this song kicked in, or when the lyrics kicked in? The first line to this song is awesome. We've been talking about how their lyrics are meaningless I and everything. I have thought. This, this is actually about something. All your dreams are made. Yeah, all your dreams are made when you're chained to the mirror and the razor blade. It's an obvious cocaine reference, which is what they were doing a ton of at the time. And so the song isn't really like, it's not about that or really about anything in particular. But like, it sounds really cool. That's a dope yeah, line. It, it is. It sounds like they're going to make a point, but then they throw in lines like, tomorrow never knows what it doesn't know too soon. Uh, well, well, does it, Jake? I mean, it, it's cute. At least, in that they're they're like aping a little bit of of uh, tomorrow never knows production at the beginning. Yes, mm-hmm. and and then th- actually throwing the song title in. I thought of that when when I was listening to this. I'm like, boy, again, they're just not even hiding the fact that they were yeah. blatantly ripping off the Beatles. Yeah, tomorrow never knows is a Beatle thing. If you don't know that, but I do love the intro guitar, and for me. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a trained musician. <laughs> Jake says this every episode. Um, yeah. I can't tell where the one is when the guitar comes in because it's so obscure on its own without a backbeat behind mm-hmm. it that they leave it hanging for a while. And you're well, like, there's there's a misleading back. There's a misleading yeah because he comes in with click. with that with that right. hit on the tom. the tom yeah and you're like is i still can't feel where the yep. one is and it's only when the rest of the band kicks in that you're like oh that's really really cool it's also one of these throwbacks to definitely maybe where they're not using strings it's a straight ahead rock song and really my favorite songs on the album tend to be the more straight ahead rock songs where they're pushing heavy guitars and we were going to talk a little bit about s- some music nerdery and about the loudness oh it's, that's battle. great great we're finally yeah. getting to some music nerdery yeah. i was waiting yeah. for this well this song is a great example of that uh, so is, is one of you guys want to explain to uh you know our non-musician musically trained actually, like actually, jake listeners G- george you tend to listen critically to the way that albums are produced way more than I do. So I think you're a good person to wow, talk about Wow, what a compliment, because I know that you listen critically. But anyway, so so what we're talking about is the loudness war. And so what that is, if you, if you pop into... I feel like it's much more easily explained these days than um, before. But if you pop in an album from the 60s, 70s, or even 80s, and then just to some degree in the 90s when things start to change a little bit, it's quieter. You have to turn it up louder to achieve the same sort of volume on your car stereo or whoever, wherever it is you're listening. It's just, it's quieter. And so what started happening, and a lot of people say with this album, with What's the Story, Morning Glory, is that they started using compression. And what compression is, is making loud stuff quiet, or sorry, quiet stuff loud and making loud stuff loud. So everything is loud. Right. And so if you look at a waveform, everybody's seen a waveform and it's really I'm looking quiet. at one right now. There you go. You can see how loud something is based on the waveform. And so, so loud, the loudness war is basically claiming that all songs these days are just a big, solid block. There's no dynamics. There's no up and down. There's no quiet and loud. It's all loud. And so... Whenever I hear that about this album, I think to myself, well, listen to the intro of Wonderwall. That acoustic guitar comes in so quiet. But if you listen to it on the radio, it's a whole lot louder because, you know, it's a distinctive intro in spite of being really, really quiet on the album. And so I don't think the loudness war really was, you know, kickstarted by this album, at least not with like the hit singles. But then you listen to Morning Glory and it's pretty loud. Well, 
the way that it was always explained to me was it's like looking at a graph and and the graph has ups and downs. Like if you looked at a monthly graph, you'd have one bar that's high, one bar that's lower. And when you record music, you've got that kind of wave like you were talking about. And compression basically takes all of those different level lines, pushes them evenly and then moves them up so that it's all on an even level and you're not getting major peaks and valleys. And what happened with the loudness war is they took that level of pushing up and pushed it up even higher. Right. And it, it gave this push to the music. So you're saying the compression was always there, but you know the level on which they set it was raised. Compression well, has existed since the 50s or 60s, I think. Sure. I mean, what happened was... Um, you know these these digital plugins came in that could uh, you know intelligently compress like far beyond what you could do with the previous technology. And as soon as as soon as that happened, producers and especially mastering engineers and labels were like, "Oh, we can we can use this to make our stuff louder than the other than the other label stuff." The problem with that is that radio stations, just like television, really really want to avoid having these explicitly heavy separate levels from song to song like it would be brash and glaring if you were listening to the radio and one song ends and the next song is twice as loud as the song before it you'd have to be constantly turning down up your radio so even radio stations have to use compression across the board on what they're playing so it was kind of I wouldn't say a dick move, but it made things it was harder a dick for a move. while. Yeah, to... it was something done specifically for the CD buying public. Right. But for the radio listening public and for people watching videos on TV, this stuff got sent to radio stations and to MTV, and they had to adjust it again so right. that it wasn't blasting compared to the thing playing before or after it. But the question I have is, do you guys think it's bad? I the... think it it depends on the album. So I think totally. there are some albums that sound bad because a mastering engineer went overboard with L1 Ultra Maximizer. Um, there are also albums that are highly compressed that sound really good because it suits the music and it was done with care. I think music like punk music got better and sounded way better when compression kicked in. Like, just the loudness factor of that sounds awesome and there's not as many dynamics but music that has a lot of dynamics to it which i'm a much bigger fan of mm-hmm. i don't i don't think it lends itself as well do either of you know this is an indie long shot but do either of you know the song infinity guitars by sleigh bells no but i know sleigh bells okay. they're awesome um i love sleigh bells infinity guitars is from their first album and it is. It does something that I've almost never heard in any other song, which is sleigh bells are are loud. They are like that is that is like the the one adjective that you would never hesitate to say about sleigh bells is like they use compression very effectively. They are a very loud band, and Infinity Guitars they it starts out loud and then for the final verse and chorus it gets much louder. It's so unexpected and so unaffected, so effective and so much fun. But does it feel like the song? Is- building or does it feel like no it feels it comes out of nowhere like you know you're you're getting you're getting like you know deliciously like punched with this rhythm and now you're just getting punched harder so is it actually louder like it's actually like there's at a higher db or is it just the dynamics in the song feel louder that's a really good question i think it's actually loud because that's the thing when everything sounds loud then what then what is loud 
But if the dynamics of the, if the dynamics of the song are such that you know you've got a really quiet part, like you know the intro to, to Wonderwall, you know, but it's just turned up a bunch, but then it turns back down and everything. I don't really think that necessarily compromises the experience of the song. But you do um, suffer what people refer to as I think it's ear fatigue, sound sure. fatigue, something like that. If you listen to that's the argument against the loudness war, um, as it's been explained to me, is that it, your your ears get fatigued if they're just being punched in the head over and over again george and i are going to see a metalcore band tonight damn it and yes and <laughs> jake played me some last time he was here it's great so yeah. something tells me i'm going to be uh, experiencing a lot of ear fatigue tonight did, did jake tell you what i said when he played me august burns rad no um, I he, he played me a sound like uh, this is this is really good and I can tell this is the kind of music that if I uh, told someone I was listening to it and I got the genre very slightly wrong and they were into this kind of music <laughs> they would be upset I I was like I know it's like some metal something or some kind of hardcore and Jake said it's metalcore <laughs> it is yeah no that is the subgenre and uh, I stopped paying attention to metal a while ago and then I just recently got back into it but yeah it's been cut up uh, you know 18 different ways and uh some of it's great, some of it's good, some of mm-hmm. it I'm, I don't care for. But uh, nonetheless, uh, music fascist Jake and I. A previous episode, you mentioned that uh, that was it was his moniker. Um, I coined that back in the mid '90s, thanks to you know him being less tolerant of different types of music. But here we are, not only talking about what's the story, Morning Glory, but going to a metal show mm-hmm. later today. And so, Jake, I commend you. You've grown up. I'm really excited about it, too. Like, I think this is going to be awesome. He is genuinely exciting. He came to visit to Portland, and he said, you know, I listened to that stuff all the way down to, to Portland, and man, it's great. And wow, just a, yet more vindication musically that Jake is. <laughs> I'm, I'm going with uh, with my 15-year-old to see Bad Religion on Sunday. Yes. Wow. So excited. Your 15-year-old's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, do you want to listen to one more song, or are we good here? No, I think we're done. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that was a lot to say about a band that I don't even like. <laughs> <laughs> and so it comes right. out. <laughs> Just kidding, George. This has all been a ruse. Oasis sucks. You're an idiot for believing otherwise. <laughs> all right. So hey, we've done we've done ten episodes in the Jake era. Wow, we're we're all caught up. Yes. Okay, all it's right. been real. <laughs> cool. Jake Jake is now back back to music fascism and <laughs> we never heard from him again. George, thank you so much for being on the My show. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, you guys. All right. Uh this has been Hidden Jukebox. I'm Matthew Amster Burton. Hey, you can find yeah. us on Facebook. Oh, right, right, right. You can find us at hiddenjukebox.com. I swear I'm going to work on Twitter and Instagram at some point here. That would be awesome. Uh, um, yeah, come come to our Facebook page. I want to know if you were in a cover band, which band would you cover? For sure. Yeah. Uh, until next time, I'll go. I'll go first. Oasis. <laughs> cool. I'm not gonna go. Uh, I'm Jake Amster. <laughs> I'm Matthew Amster Burton, and I'm George McCleary.